he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. get me a gay mickey gotta get a gay well hello and welcome to another episode of in the details a celebration of nuance where with varying frequencies i queen out on all of the acting choices micro moments and magic in the minutiae that make a scene great my name is colin drucker your name is barbara Belgetti's. that's never changing that never will that never has uh, and there's something to be said for consistency and routine and familiarity in these strange times. And this week, we are, first of all, we're just going to say hello and like check in and and, and um, not pretend like it's a weird, it's a weird time out there. I know like every podcast you listen to, I'm sure the podcaster is starting with, all right, well, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but, um, you know, we're in strange times. It's like, I know. I know, but you know, I think what it is, um, is it's just, it's, it's, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but, uh, it is so much more of like, I just need this. I need to say this to somebody. So if you're listening, thank you. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm trying to look at the bright side because like, there's nothing else to do. I mean, I am home, you know, there's nothing else for me to do. I, I can work from home. So I'm really grateful for that and, um, that that won't be disrupted, but, um, I mean, as a podcaster and someone who, you know, loves staying home with my cat and loves watching things and, and queening out on the nuances, I am trying to find, like, the opportunities here to, like, expand my catalog and watch more stuff and then make more podcasts about it. And, you know, if if we really are kind of all needing to just kind of hunker down and stay home, it's like, well, what can, what, you know... I, what can I do? I can create more content for people to listen to because, you know, you just, you get tired of rewatching The Office over and over. You? Me? Who? Uh, I'm Lately, I think my repeat watch has been Schitt's Creek. I don't know. That, that has joined the canon of The Office and The Golden Girls and Parks and Rec even. Um, I can even do that where I can just like put it on and then just kind of zone out and put it on in the background and even go to sleep to it. So I can now go to sleep to Schitt's Creek. You know, con- congratulations. I'll have to do a whole other episode about my feelings on Schitt's Creek. Um, I feel like I haven't, I've been wanting to do an episode about the end of season five and Stevie's big moment in Cabaret. And I mean, I have no excuse not to now, but season six has got a lot to talk about. And I will, I will just say this up front. Obviously, I love Moira Rose and I love Alexis Rose. I mean, I love all of them, but I feel like the one character who I have not been appreciating and now in season six, I am seeing so much to appreciate is Johnny Rose is Eugene Levy he is so good this season there he has given so many great little moments to be really funny and also very like genuine and heartfelt there's something about his character that I'm in my many rewatches I'm picking up the nuances and typically you know some you know some guy and something when there's women as good as the women in Schitt's Creek like I'm not going to notice him and especially even with like Dan Levy it's like Get in line, Eugene. But he's so good. I'm so, um, you know, the older white man just really needs to be getting more appreciation. And I'm not putting that on him. He is just that. He's just so funny. Um, And uh, we'll talk about that. 
But this episode, what we're really here to talk about is, I mean, if you're listening to this months later, whenever we've come out of all of this um, on the other side, uh, then then maybe maybe the context is like, you know, it's just simple nostalgia. But if you're listening to this in the in the midst of our quarantine era, then consider this some quarantine inspired content. No, we are not going to be talking about outbreak or pandemic or any other, um, you know, Corona porn uh, out there, which I mean, you know, listen, I did watch outbreak. I did. So I'm not saying I'm better than you. Uh, I did. I leaned into it. I stared I stared the devil in the eye and said, all right, what do you got for me? And he was like, well, I've got this monkey. And I was like, well, that's cute. So Outbreak, um, you know what I liked about Outbreak is they contained it in one town. That was nice. So honestly, Outbreak is not that traumatizing because it is better handled than this. So, um, but I have been watching so many other things, but that we'll talk about but what i want to talk about today is a little movie known as known as who who it's called what it's called the movie the name of the movie it's called lady in a cage oh my god my friends lady in a cage now i've seen this movie before i saw it probably years ago and i think it kind of went on a shelf of like okay yeah that was that was an experience that i had and something some some subconscious wise voice saw this movie sitting in my Amazon Prime, like movies you might like, movies we think you're going to like. And I was like, Amazon, you're right. And just said, watch it. Just put this movie on. This is exactly what you need to see right now. And that voice was right. That voice usually is. Because Lady in Cage, in so many ways, if we're going to lean into like, if you want escapist content that doesn't make you think about life right now, um, I still think Lady in a Cage works. But it is also this like incredibly ham-fisted commentary on like societal collapse, all nestled in a story about Olivia de Havilland stuck in a small private elevator in her home. Lady in a cage, locked in her own madhouse of insane intruders, powerless to stop the psychopathic horror that hems her in. We're gonna kill you, Pop. All of you. You. A human being. Olivia de Havilland, helpless before the rage of such characters as the wino, half crazed with his own destroying sin. The hustler, a blousy pesbin, the most amazing role Anne Southern has ever played. The muscler, lusting for the last wild thrill of killing. The weirdo, a blonde psycho driven to tempt, to taunt, to destroy. The wildo, frenzied by a woman's body or the razor edge of a sharp glittering knife. They're all in Lady in a Cage, the picture that is not for the weak, and perhaps not even for the strong. And of course, shit just starts to go down in Lady in a Cage, and that's where we get James Caan in his first feature film debut, his first feature film debut. That would be redundant, but I might just be a bit mesmerized and dazzled by the torso hair. To say nothing of Anne Southern giving a classic Best Supporting Actress performance, doing the definition of the word blousy. Uh, It's like a failed screen test for the role of Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. George, this is big. This thing you found us here is big, real important. And I'll always be grateful. But but let's not lose it out of being greedy. And the rest of the cast is fine. I would say those are all my, like, favorites, but... 
James Conn's character, Randall, his two accomplices, Elaine and Essie, played by Jennifer Billingsley and Raphael Campos, uh, they are honestly like incredibly annoying characters and you really want like a much larger comeuppance for them. But they're also, there's all of these, there's the, all of this sort of narrative about the levels of kind of um, the levels of villain, you know, in this movie and the levels of antagonist in this movie, because really like Mrs. Hilliard, Olivia de Havilland's character is just obviously, you know, the example of, of sane, orderly, you know, ways of conducting yourself in this world. And then it just gets, progressively invaded first by Jeff Corey's character George as this you know sort of religious zealot slash drunk of the neighborhood who um, breaks in and is relatively harmless he's um, he's really just trying to get by in this world and, and what can he take from this woman's house but then he drags in and Southern's character Sade who's um, this sort of old prostitute uh, I don't I don't know if she's still working but we're we're constantly reminded that she is uh that she's fat or that she's thick or that she's hippie um i don't think she's that big i think she's just you know uh that she's yeah i mean i think she looks great um but they uh again they're really just kind of there to get what they can get out of the situation they're just you know desperate people in desperate times but then randall elaine and essie are like this next level uh of evil that kind of invades her home and breaks down society in this home until finally of course mrs hilliard needs to start fighting back what i love about this movie above everything else is that olivia de Havilland's performance is kind of awesome it's really campy at moments um my favorite being when sade and george break into the house and um the phone rings and mrs hilliard manages to throw something at the phone to get to to knock it off the hook and she starts calling out for help and i am obsessed with this line reading help please i am trapped in small private elevator 1132 lenko street 1132 lenko street help i don't really know why she says why she needs to let them know that it's a small private elevator or, or why she describes it as i am trapped in small private elevator like why why is she james earl jones reading a telegram like what's that about but uh overall I like her commitment to to this kind of destruction of um, what is sane and good in this world and representing that is is kind of fabulous. And the fact that like by the end of the movie, not to spoil it, she comes to recognize that she is um, she is no better, you know, and I think that uh, what that kind of all speaks to to me is that this is like there's no vanity in this. And I'm surprised by that. Like I'm impressed that she let herself get so beat up in this movie and get so like ugly and um I don't know. I just I I appreciate that, that Olivia de Havilland like put her back into it as much as she did in this movie. And there's some. I, I think that's really what we're going to talk about today. Some of my favorite moments, especially of hers in this small private elevator, obviously being one of my most favorite. I am trapped in small private elevator. But I think you know, watching her performance in this, it's like. It all starts with the first time she like loosens the bow around her neck. I mean, when when she first enters the elevator, once her clearly gay son Malcolm has left and has left her the letter that kind of um, is the act one gun for an act three bullet that never really quite 
strikes. We never really kind of figure out how that all gets resolved, but um, that's not the only thing that doesn't get resolved in this movie, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But I think when you look at her and how she's, how we first see her entering the elevator and kind of entering this predicament, I mean, the way that she's all put together and she's got her little radio and she's got her book and she's got her vase with her flower and she's got her little, her little, you know, her little house pumps on and her hell house coat. And, and she's so, um, gathered, you know, and she's so like, everything is in order. And the only thing that is out of order is the fact that she had fallen and broken her hip a few months earlier. So now she's largely you know i wouldn't say largely incapacitated she's walking around with a cane but she can't go up the stairs and so hence the elevator but there are many sequences in this movie that it is just olivia de havilland acting and some of it is you know internal monologue a lot of it is her having to just you know talk to the phone i love when she uh uses she she managed to manages to unscrew this panel from the wall uh, like from from a corner or something of inside the elevator, and she uses the the little neckerchief that she's recently loosened from her neck to tie that to her cane so that she can create this you know th- this little you know stick that she can hopefully knock the phone off the hook. That's the phone is of course you know she can see it you know um, it's it's right there on a little table in the foyer and so she starts to lower the little stick down and she's sitting there just waiting and the phone had been ringing a few times earlier but her attempts to knock it off the hook by throwing her shoes did not work but she's she's standing there holding her little you know uh, exaggerated fishing lure waiting for the phone to ring willing it to ring and I I I just I love this. I love this performance here. Ring somebody. Nellie. Nellie, please. Call me up. Malcolm, love. Call me up. I think the the emphatic delivery of call me up. I mean, I just I I need the gays to be saying that more often. So, um, yeah, or anyone, really, you know, I, I try to task my own people first, but I ask anybody, really. There's another fabulous moment later where now we should we, what you need to know about Mrs. Cornelia Hilliard is that she uh, she writes poems. She is a poetess. And so in her moments of, of grief and strife, because all of this has happened, obviously, because a series of events where, you know, um, the electricity got knocked out for her home. And so, uh, you know, it, it's just this Rube Goldberg of problems that happens this day. And so she is uh, in her delirium, in her sweaty delirium, has started to craft a poem in her mind, um, railing against electricity. Um, and now this is not spoken. All of this is is internal monologue. But what is worth, you won't miss it, but what's worth seeing in the movie is the the wild-eyed, there's no other word for it. There's no better description. There's no better usage of the term wild-eyed the wild-eyed face journey that Olivia goes through in in 
cranking this poem out in her mind. I'll write a poem in my head. Oh, I haven't written anything but letters in so long. Oh, I have worshipped thee, false god, for thou art false electricity. Ye gods, what a rhyme. Kilowatt is his name, and we did burn incense to his power. But lo, one day our god Kilowatt left us. Could we then go back to the gods of our childhood? I'd also be remiss to not mention... um, there's a, a a shot that you know we we see that a little bit of time has passed and she's sitting on the floor of the elevator and she's you know got her head in her arms and she's you know it's just it's that body language of i just given up and then out of nowhere she lifts her head for a, a rousing rendition of alouette And even though uh, George and Sade eventually arrive at the house, they're not interacting with her. And so um, her attempts to talk to them, her attempts to appeal to Sade as a woman, um, you know, even Sade doesn't connect with her. But there is that one moment where Mrs. Hilliard calls out, please help me. Haven't you ever needed help? And, you know, Sade has a moment of pause. And obviously, you know, this is deep. This is a deep moment. I mean, of course, right? Hasn't she ever needed help? For the most part, still, Olivia de Havilland is having to really just uh, interact with herself and interact with the elevator and um, interact with the poems in her mind. But I love that once Randall, Essie, and Elaine break in and things really elevate, there is this fabulous confrontation. The way this is all set up is really smart in terms of the, the set design because the elevator is its not like... I mean, obviously, they've in, they've installed it in a home after the fact, so there isn't some, like, dedicated elevator shaft, which would really throw off so much of this movie. But it is this, like, birdcage, in a way, that they've put in the huge foyer of her home. And so she's trapped just before the, the third floor, apparently. And so she's able to have this great conversation through the bars looking up at James Conn's character, Randall, as he's kind of leaning over the banister. And he's able to hit the box and shake it. Like, there's, there's a... There's an interesting level of of connection, but really it, it's it's like someone talking to an animal in a cage. And despite that, I I this is like it, it's so nice to finally see her just like lay into him and it's and to interact with someone. She's um she just reads him for filth here. And I uh I appreciate that despite the desperate moment that Mrs. Hilliard is in, she um she still goes for the kill. I don't know. I love it. Oh, what? Ooh, what monsters? Oh, do your steal and get out. Steal and get out. What sort of creatures are you? Animals would have more simple compassion than you. Uh, you're, you're something holier than thou. 
Huh? You're something, uh... You ain't no animal. I am a human being. A thinking, feeling creature. Well, me, uh, I'm an animal. Right now, I am all animal. A lot of time, I, I can't even make animal. A lot of time, I'm just what they call uh, inmate. Animal's better. What do you mean, inmate? Asylum? You're from some asylum? Asylum? Work for him. I've been inside every way there is to be inside. I've been some kind of inside since I was uh, nine years old. Oh, I see. You're one of the many bits of offal produced by the welfare state. You're what so much of my tax dollars goes for the care and feeding of. This movie has some interesting layers that maybe... It's like a seven-layer dip where some really kind of works more than others and some really stick out. And you're like, well, yeah, that's definitely an olive. But, um, you know, the refried beans may get mixed up with the sour cream, you know. And I think that the layer that kind of doesn't fully emerge but I, I appreciate in this movie is the weird psychosexual relationship that develops between Randall and Mrs. Hilliard and how that's reflective of the of the fucked up relationship that Mrs. Hilliard has with her son Malcolm and what's implied about Randall's relationship with his grandmother it's uh especially for 1964 like it's uh and for a movie that you might consider just like a schlocky you know old lady in peril movie it it's uh i think it, it's an impressive layer it's an impressive uh little bit of refried beans that i i am noticing through the sour cream um but I wish there was more of Malcolm's act one letter eventually, you know, gets read by, you know, by Essie and, and, uh, and Elaine and Randall. And, you know, that's where they kind of reveal that Malcolm has, he's alluded to a safe in the living room. Cause you're kind of like, what do these people care? But it's like, no, 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 there's a safe in the living room that has all this money in it. But what Malcolm also says is that like, I, you know, I want half of the, of the money that's in that safe. And then I want you to just like, you know, release me from your love, release me from your from your generosity um, or else I'm going to kill myself. That's kind of a um, it's sort of a summation of what the letter says. And it and it moves the story in a slightly new direction away from just kind of this collapse of society to this indictment of Mrs. Hilliard as being a part of a collapse in society, perhaps, or that her her version of culture and normal uh you know, sane ways of living are not so sane. I like that the movie, because eventually Randall like climbs into the cage with her. And I think that there's an intimacy there that they really do play up. And it starts violent because, you know, he's like strangling her. And then Essie stops him. He's like, wait, 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 you got to hear what's in this letter. But I think whatever it is in Mrs. Hilliard, where she starts to regard Randall as if he is Malcolm. She starts to talk to him in a reasonable way about Malcolm, um, as if he's some kind of confidant. And the movie manages to sell to us why Randall would engage back with her, because it's like she, they are both um, activating something in each other. I'll be 30 next Wednesday, 
And I won't have many more chances in life. What? What? Every time I try to leave you, you add a room or dress up the house or charm me. No. I thought you only had him at it until he was 12. You still got him at it, haven't you? Charming baby, huh? We feather earn about the safe. I had a holier than anything old Crover, grandmother. She tried to keep me at it too. Oh, I'd have killed her if she hadn't died. Like she was trying to kill me. Like you killed his um what's his name? Uh Malcolm. No. No, this is his studio. He decorated it himself. Complete freedom to come and go. He wanted to stay here. Why would he write me a letter, a letter? We're his closest. He's not married, is he? What? D -d Doesn't even have a girl. I mean, I think the fact that, and this is a, a spoiler, but I don't know if, this, I mean, it, I think this movie, like, it doesn't end up resolving some of its largest plot points by the end, so I don't really know if there's much to say about spoilers, but there's something Oedipal about the way that she then blinds him at the end, and, and I don't even know if that's fully realized or if I'm reading too far into it, because what we're also seeing by the end of this movie is, like, how far... Mrs. Hilliard has to go to um, kind of how how low she has to stoop to survive this situation. And, um, you know, there is also kind of a great campy, you know, it's, it's an internal monologue moment, but it's when she does unscrew these little aluminum, um, I don't know, these little sticks, these little frames that she managed to unscrew from the elevator that, that become like act two guns that she eventually uses in act three. But when she realizes, oh, like I, I'm gonna need to, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna need to, to join, you know, you can't beat him, join him. And there's that great internal monologue thought of Stone Age, here I come. But in case, in case that isn't subtle enough for us, there's also the realization um, that that she, her, when she does finally get out of the, the cage, which looks incredibly painful. And obviously it's a stunt double, but like she like falls on a stepladder. It's terrible. I was like, well, that's, that's one way to break your hip again. But she, for some reason, instead of calling the police, she drags herself to the phone so that she can try to get a hold of Malcolm at the lake to try to stop him from killing himself. And, you know, of course, A, realizes that the phone has been disconnected from the wall and B, realizes that her, um, her that her attempts or what how she would attempt to stop him or win him over with a trip or with whatever he wants that it's exactly what he wants to be free from and she has this moment where she realizes oh god i am a monster Malcolm, that letter you didn't need it it's just being cooked up here all these months listen we'll take a trip together london paris rome just you and me, all the places you love. We... Release me from your love. Release me from your generosity. It's all true. I'm a monster. A 
I really love her performance at the end of this movie when she gets out of the house and she's dragging herself up the sidewalk and there's and it's on a busy road there's a lot of cars passing by and, and i'm assuming this is also some kind of commentary as well that like nobody's stopping nobody's noticing this there's a scene earlier when she she gets out earlier and blinds randall then gets dragged back in by essie and elaine and nobody notices she's at some point just like laying sprawled out on her front steps and nobody stops nobody says anything and so then it's not until she gets out again and then Randall, who's blinded at that point, comes out after her and he grabs her. I mean, then she's like shoves her thumbs in his in his in his eyes and like basically creates a spectacle. We see this like one gross shot. It, it's not like fabulous makeup effects, but it it pro- it shows the point that like he looks like a monster at this point. And that's what catches someone's attention. And this woman screams and it causes this whole, you know, traffic situation that somehow ends with Randall getting his head run over and um, Olivia de Havilland, Mrs. Hillier just like sprawled perfectly laying, you know, halfway in the street and not in a sort of vain way because it like, I, again, like thinking about how she enters that elevator towards the end of the movie and where she is now, you know, this finally like gets everybody's attention and people stop and run over. Nobody Nobody really helps her. They all kind of just surround her and watch her. And she, um, she, she sees Essie and Elaine escaping, and she starts dragging her. This, I mean, this scene. This is when I I started to clap because it's just a fabulous moment of her, you know, dragging herself up her front walk, pointing and screaming "murderers!" And everybody's just like watching her as if she's this kind of freakish profit that they don't know what to do with. The movie ultimately, I don't know if it sticks the landing because uh, Essie and Elaine kind of unceremoniously get caught by the cops and, you know, escorted away. I I guess they I guess they didn't deserve as much of a comeuppance as Randall because they were eh, I don't know. Um they were just so annoying. <laughs> um then Mrs. Hilliard, you know, some cop uh it, it drapes a, a coat over her because that's what somebody wants, you know, in this blistering hot heat as she's like laying against the wall of her house. Um and then by some series of events that probably has no logic to it, you know, and is not fully following the continuity of the movie, but something shifts the loosened electrical box that then switches the power back on in her house. And, you know, the, the air conditioner starts dripping condensation on her head. And Mrs. Hilliard just starts to, like, laugh. And, you know, she's she's essentially she's Sally at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She's just, you know, she's just been reduced. But here's the deal. Here's the problem with this ending that I I love. I don't hate this ending. It's just there's two things, two major things we haven't resolved. A, has Malcolm killed himself? We have not resolved that. Has she just let that go? He's like, you know what? Not my circus, not my monkeys. Like, why does she not get the resolution on that? B, even bigger problem here is that Sade, played by Anne Southern, gets locked in a closet like 20 minutes earlier, and we never hear from her or see her again. I'm happy that she survives, because what happens eventually is that Randall and company decide it's time to kill George. And, and Essie's the one who kills him, so Essie's not that innocent. But 
Um, they kill George, and then they're going to kill Sade, who then Anne Southern has her moment. This, I mean, she's again, it's a great performance, but this is my favorite Anne Southern moment. I'm just a hustler. I ain't even a user. I'm just a hustler. <laughs> but then she makes a run for it, and Anne Southern running. By the way, there's a couple shots. There's just there's just something about. Like, this is my kind of final girl. My kind of final woman is Anne Southern in Lady in a Cage. Um, she's not quite the final girl, but she doesn't get killed. She makes a run for it and then, um, you know, fakes him out and runs into a closet. And then they decide instead of, you know, going in after and killing her, they just lock the door and say, oh, well, you know, we'll get to her after we kill Mrs. Hilliard. But they never do. And we, we I assume eventually the cops got her out of there. You know, and I, I don't know what's going to happen to her then. Um, but, uh, that just always bothered me that we don't get resolution, especially because it's like, well, what happened to the other woman in the movie? That being said, it's a great movie is a great performance. Uh, Olivia de Havilland took over the role for Joan Crawford. And I kind of feel like I'm sure Joan would have been great in this, but I think there's something, I, I feel like I would not appreciate it as much. I feel like it would be campier and I feel like some of the moments that Olivia de Havilland has where she does have to like freak out and scream for help. I think her, I think it would have felt less refined and crazier and it would have been, it would have been Joan Crawford in straight jacket. Great performance, but different. Whereas this, I was like, no, genuinely pretty great performance. I mean, any of the clunky moments were honestly um, in the script. Anyway, you can find lady in a cage on Amazon Prime. You can find it on Hulu. I think you can find it on YouTube. I, uh, I, th- I really think this is, uh, this is the um, campy, uh, over-the-top, overwrought, perfect quarantine content for these crazy times. Um, I don't know if I felt better about the world after watching this movie or felt worse, but I felt distracted. I have a whole bunch of other things that I want to talk about in terms of stuff I've been watching, stuff I would recommend, stuff I, you know, just kind of uh, recommendations uh, for while we're all staying indoors uh, that I'll do a whole separate episode on. I just wanted to focus on Lady in the Cage in this one. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and on other things that you want to hear me talk about because I might as well step it up and start doing more podcasts because what else are we doing here? Um, all you got to do is drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Colin Drucker or Instagram at Colin Drucker underscore, and we can chat there. Um, otherwise, I'll be back very soon. I promise. I promise with even more uh, queening out and nuances and micro moments and acting choices and things full of acting choices and micro moments and nuances that I can't wait to queen out on. Until then, my fellow ladies in cages, I uh, I bid you an alouette <laughs> and an adieu. <laughs> Bye. I'm staying. I'm staying.